If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and take them. Turn to John chapter 13. That's where we're going to be today. Um, We have been tracing the life of Christ chronologically. We are at Thursday night of Passion Week. This is the final week of Jesus' life. And Jesus has shown, as we covered two weeks ago, how he fulfills the Passover by being the final Passover lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. And at one point in the Last Supper, Judas left the meal uh, when Jesus confronted him about his betrayal. Last week, we discussed this dispute that popped up between the disciples about who would be the greatest. And we talked about how Jesus responded to that dispute. He got up, he grabbed a towel, and he began to wash the feet of the disciples. Instead of feeding their egos, instead of saying, well, you're definitely not the greatest, and you're kind of, you know, halfway there. Instead of feeding their egos, he served them, and he showed them what it was like to be the greatest. Not being the loudest, not being the most demonstrative personality, but being the greatest servant. That's how kingdom greatness is determined. And so we pick up the story uh, from this Thursday evening. And John, at the end of John chapter 13, this is Jesus' final message to his disciples. And the sermon that Jesus preaches, what he communicates, what he says to this, these disciples in the upper room as he's preparing to leave there and go to the Garden of Gethsemane. It spans chapters 14 through 17 of the Gospel of John. I strongly encourage you to read it. It's a fantastic message because it is Christ's final message to his disciples. And so what we're talking about today, I've entitled Peace in Troubled Times. And so if you do have your bulletin, there's a little sheet you can pull out and fill in some blanks to follow along with us. Today, I want us to really feel this overwhelming sense of reverence and awe for Jesus. We may have read this passage a dozen times, But I want us to walk away today feeling like it means something more to us. Not because of anything that I'm going to say, but because we feel ourselves in that moment with Jesus. We sense the tension that existed. We imagine ourselves as one of the disciples there with Jesus, hearing his words for the very first time. So let's look at what Jesus said at the end of John chapter 13, verses 33 through 35. He said to his disciples, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, we started this conversation with the disciples by calling them little children. And usually, if you walk up to a group of grown men and call them little kids, that's not necessarily a compliment. But in the Greek, it's actually a term of endearment. They had no understanding what was about to take place. 
They understood about as much of what Jesus was about to do as a little child would. Their limit, their understanding was very limited. And so Jesus said that where he was physically headed, where the Holy Spirit was leading them, they could not come. The word, he said specifically, they cannot come. And that word cannot means powerless. They had no power. They had no authority to go where Jesus was going and to do what only he could do. And to add to the 613 commandments in the Old Testament, Jesus told him he was adding the 614th. Love one another. Then he said something that absolutely should be underlined or highlighted in your Bible. Even if you use the Bible app, you can touch your screen or hold it down and highlight it. This is an important statement that Jesus made. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. People are not going to know we are his disciples by how many arguments we start on Facebook, who we vote for, how much we love a certain sports team that is no longer in the uh, baseball playoffs. Just throwing that out there. How many cooking videos we share, how many memes we create, how many motivational sayings we can quote. He said, by this action... By loving one another unconditionally, all people will perceive that we are his disciples when they witness our love for one another. And one of the most tragic statements I've ever heard, but sadly found to be true, is that Christians tend to kill their own wounded. They witness someone's fall from grace, Someone's mistake, someone's indiscretion, someone's failure, someone's sin, and they pounce on them. Are we known as Christ's disciples by judging one another or by loving one another? Jesus had just dropped this new commandment and this powerfully profound yet simple instruction on them. He said, the world will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. And the person in the room that is often the spokesman for the group spoke up. Did he ask Jesus to elaborate on what he meant? Did he ask Jesus how that would work? Did he ask Jesus, please increase your love in my heart for these other knuckleheads in the room that think they're greater than me? Did, did he ask Jesus any of those things? No. He solely focused on one part of what Jesus said. He latched onto it and he wouldn't let it go. So let's pick it up. John 13, 36 through 38. It says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me. But you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. First, we see Peter's objection. Why can't I follow? Why can't I follow? Jesus, where are you going that I am powerless to follow? I will lay down my life for you. I will substitute my life for yours. 
I will die in your place. To which Jesus responded with such pastoral tenderness. Will you take my place? Jesus' death was called, if you want the fancy word for it, substitutionary atonement. He died in our place. He substituted himself for the punishment that we deserved. He laid down his life for our sins to be covered. And here is Peter, still clearly not understanding what Jesus is about to do, saying he volunteers to be the substitute for the substitute. However, sin could not be covered through Peter's death. It had to be Jesus, because only Jesus was a fitting substitute. Then Jesus dropped a truth bomb on Peter. Judas wasn't the only one who would betray Christ. Peter would do it too. Lest Peter think that he would be this loyal, valiant defender of Christ, when the heat got turned up on Peter to save his own skin, he would deny even knowing Jesus. This had to be shocking to Peter and all the disciples that Peter would deny Jesus, the one who always stood up and spoke up, would betray Jesus before morning comes. And yet, here Jesus' pastoral tenderness again, John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus gave the disciples comfort. He told them, don't let your hearts be agitated. Don't let your hearts be restless, disturbed. Don't have inward commotion. They should have faith in God and in him. That is to say, they should trust in the knowledge that God is fully aware of what will happen and he's fully capable to get the glory from it. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what obstacle is in your path. I don't know what speed bump that you have hit and you just can't get over. I don't know what bad news you've received, but you need to remember that statement. God, you need to trust in the knowledge that God is fully aware of the situation that you face and he's fully aware to get the glory from it. He, is, he will lead you to impossible situations because he doesn't want your help. He wants to show you that you need his help. He wants you to learn total dependence upon him. And so he will put you in a path, in a place where you can't do anything about it. A wayward spouse, a wayward business partner, partner that is suing you for damages that you didn't create. A a job that is difficult, a, a manager or a boss that is antagonistic towards you, that hates you for whatever reason, and you don't even know why. You may feel opposition in your finances, in your health, and there's nothing you can do about it. Trust in the knowledge that God is fully aware of what is going on in your life, and He is fully capable to get the glory from it. And if he has led you to a door that is closed, he'll either open it or he'll lead you to a door that will open. We need to be just as thankful for God's no's as we are his yeses. 
Because you don't know what's on the other side of that door. You don't know what God is saving you from, protecting you from. And so we need to be thankful for all those no's. Because when he opens the door and says, yes, we know we are stepping into God's perfect will for our lives. If they believed in the Father, if they believed in Jesus, they would make it through the next three days of Christ's death and his burial and a confusing Sunday morning. And they would make it beyond. But they had to have faith that God was in control, that, that they, if they were going to surrender themselves to him, his leadership, his lordship, that he could lead them through the darkest moments of their lives. John 14, verse 5, Thomas, who doesn't say much in the Gospels, he spoke up and he said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, Peter's objection was, why can't I follow? Thomas's objection was, what is the way? Verses 2 through 4, Jesus said that he was going to prepare, to prepare a place for them. And we'll actually come back to that statement in the end because there's a lot there that we need to cover. But Thomas raised the issue in verse 5. He says, we don't understand where you're going. We don't perceive what you're talking about. If we don't know where you're headed where the place is that you're preparing for us, how can we follow you along this path? How can we know what the way is? Now, the word law in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word Torah, T-O-R-A-H, Torah. Better understood. So anytime you see the word law in your Old Testament Bible, it is that word Torah. If we really want to understand what Torah means, it is instruction, teaching, or simply put, it's the way. And there is a Jewish festival called Simchat Torah, which means the rejoicing in the Torah or the rejoicing in the way. Some believe it was on this day that Jesus was presented to the temple as a newborn baby. And so as the Jews are celebrating in Jerusalem, rejoicing in the way, what they failed to see is the way was there in Jerusalem as a newborn baby. And when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple that day, Anna, a prophetess, and Simeon, a godly man, begin to prophesy over the Son of God. By the Spirit of God. Two unlikely people. And they said that he, Jesus, would be the cause of rising and falling in many in Israel. Of many in Israel. The rising of the humble and the broken and the falling of the self-righteous. Jesus taught his disciples his teaching, his instruction, his way. Even in the book of Acts, before they were called Christians, they were called followers of the way. They were, and, and so Jesus is giving his instruction. He's giving his laws, his instruction, his teaching, his way, his Torah. And they were expected to follow that, and they, the disciples were expected to teach others 
the way of Jesus, the Torah of Jesus. And so when Thomas said to Jesus, we don't know the way, Jesus responded explicitly in verses 6 through 7. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So in Hebrew, it would have been this expression. Ani, which is I am, HaTorah, the way, emeth, and the truth, V'hachaim, and the life. I am the way. I am the embodiment of God's instruction. I am the Torah, the writing of God's revelation of himself to mankind is all about me. That's the weight of what Jesus was saying that day. And then he gave them this exclusionary statement that many people trip over. He said, these are his words, no one comes to the Father except through me. What about the people who've never heard the gospel? This is why we send missionaries out all over this country and all over the world. Because no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. What about Jewish people who are worshiping the God of the Old Testament? This is why there are Messianic Jewish missions organizations. Because no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. What about Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists who simply believe that religion because they were born into it? Will they go to heaven? No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. But this is a hard truth for, to accept for some people because we have compassion and we hate to think that there's someone who's never heard about Jesus and they will be condemned for knowledge they don't have access to. But I'll tell you two things. First, Jesus said it is not God's desire that any perish, but all come to repentance. So it's the heart of God. He's not in any way looking forward to the condemnation of anyone. He longs for their salvation, and he's reaching out to each person for them to accept his way. He's given a revelation of himself in creation. Before God had even revealed his laws and his way, Abraham was living a righteous life, and God took that righteous living and credited, credited it to him as faith. So God is a righteous judge, and every time he makes a judgment, it is a righteous judgment. He takes everything into consideration. But the second thing is the scripture is clear. If Christians will do what God has commanded us to do, no one would be without a witness of the gospel. So instead, this is a hard truth. This might sting a little bit, but I need you to hear it. Instead of us being upset at God's standard of judgment, we should be more concerned with our level of obedience. Instead of us being upset at God's standard of judgment, we need to be more concerned with our level of obedience. Because if we're being obedient, if we're supporting missions, and we are being a missionary to our community, there will be no one who is without a witness. John 14, 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. 
Peter's objection was, why can't I follow? Thomas's objection was, what is the way? Philip's objection is, where's the Father? At the end of Jesus' statement to Thomas, he said that from now on you know the Father and have seen him. But the disciples still didn't grasp what Jesus was saying. So Philip told Jesus, reveal the Father to us. Let us see the Father physically. Give us evidence of him. And that will satisfy us. Oh, that's it? That will be enough for us to believe in you. Just have the Father just pop down for fish and chips. Jesus said, John 14, 9 through 11, he said, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. I hear such tenderness in Jesus' voice but also some frustration. Jesus has walked all over Israel and Judea and Galilee and so many other places with these men. He's taught them. He's shared countless meals with them. He's ministered to them, and he's invested his life into them, and they still can't understand what he's doing. They still fail to understand this inherent oneness of God, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. That Jesus doesn't say anything of his, on his own accord, but he speaks what the Father has already spoken. He doesn't do what he wants to do. He only does what he's seen the Father do. He lives a lifestyle that he's seen the Father live. Finally, re Jesus resigns the point that if they don't get it based on what Jesus has said, at least believe based on the works they've witnessed Jesus perform. Verses 12 through 14, Jesus continues. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I'd like to read it. From the message translation, it's a paraphrase that puts it in a little bit easier to read, more common American vernacular, if there is such a thing. This is what the same passage is in the message. It says, the person who trusts me will not only do what I'm doing, but even greater things. Because I, on my way to the Father, <clears throat> am giving you the same work to do that I've been doing. You can count on it. From now on, whatever you request along the lines of who I am and what I'm doing, I'll do it. That's how the Father will be seen for who he is in the Son. Whatever you request in this way, I'll do it. Jesus is trying to elevate their understanding of how God's kingdom works. God longs to involve us in his purposes. This is a huge part of the Great Commission. That God's purposes would be accomplished through us, through our obedient efforts. 
And when we align ourselves with God's purposes and are surrendered to his will, we want God's kingdom to increase. We're not asking for selfish things. We're asking for souls to be saved. We're asking for families to be transformed. We're asking for prodigals to be returned to the Father. We're asking for God's kingdom to increase. We cannot read this verse and think that God's promises are to give us any selfish thing we want. You know, I grew up in church all my life. I mean, I was born, and the next Sunday I was in church. My dad was the pastor. He wasn't missing church. My mom was the pastor's wife, and so, boom, I was born, and we were in church. And so I've heard this scripture that if you ask anything in my name, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And I was like, you, don't know, you haven't seen my Christmas wish list, Jesus. We've already started putting things on our Amazon cart by faith. We're going to have the money to buy them for Christmas. And so I'm thinking, well, Jesus, I mean, you know, if you could give me a Lamborghini, I'll put Jesus on the side. And everywhere I go, people will notice and they'll see the name of Jesus. And you know what? Of all the ways God has blessed me, he has yet to answer that prayer. Now, I have an 18-year-old son who is really holding out hope that God's going to one day answer that prayer, but he hasn't answered it for me yet. If we align ourselves to God's will, we want what he wants, and we don't want anything that he doesn't want for us. He knows the things that if we have them, they would corrupt us. He knows the things that will be bad for us things that will turn our heart away from him. And when we fully surrender to him, we will choose to stop wanting those selfish things because we don't want anything that he doesn't want for us. There's a lot to digest in that whole topic, especially in Pentecostal churches where as I've grown up in the prosperity gospel and the word of faith movement and things of that nature, and we're not going to get into that really today. But um, before we conclude the service, I want to come back to the three verses we skipped earlier because there's something really cool. When you understand those three verses in the Jewish context and culture that Jesus was living in. So let's go back and look at John 14. Two through four. It says this in my Jesus is speaking. He says, In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, it, I'm sorry, if it were not so, would I have would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Now here Jesus is using a figure of speech that most of us are completely unaware of. This phrase is terminology that a Jewish man would say to his fiancée when they got engaged. And the Bible is a marriage covenant from cover to cover. It gives details about the groom, Jesus, and about his bride, the church, followers of Jesus Christ. 
the Bible spells out the mutual obligations and the expectations. And the ancient Jewish wedding ceremony helps us understand a deeper meaning to what Jesus is saying here to the disciples in the upper room. The first thing that we see in the Jewish wedding is the selection of the bride. And uh, Mark, could you push the thermostat up one degree? Because if you don't, everybody's going to be nice and lulled to sleep. And, and it's going to be nice and chilly in here. And I'm going to lose you all. So the first thing in a Jewish wedding ceremony is the selection of the bride. The bride was usually chosen by the father of the groom. The father would send out a trusted servant to search for a bride for his son. And we see this example in Genesis 24, when Abraham, the father, Isaac, the son, and Eliezer is the searching servant. It was Eliezer's task to find a suitable bride for Isaac and to bring her back through uh, and bring her into the family through marriage with the son Isaac. So it is the Holy Spirit's task to search out and convict those who are out of relationship with the Father and reconcile them to God through the Son Jesus Christ. Rebecca agreed to marry Isaac before she ever even saw him. He could have been hideous. Think about that, ladies. You're afraid to go on a blind date. What about a blind marriage? You agree to marry this guy sight unseen. You want to talk about faith. This lady had great faith. She agreed to marry Isaac before she even saw him. So we, as the bride of Christ, have agreed to be his bride before we have ever seen him face to face. The second part of the Jewish wedding is that a bride price would be established. And so to gain the bride, a price had to be paid. And, and some of you are like, wait a minute, ladies. You're thinking, I didn't get paid. I didn't get any money before I got married. The money didn't go necessarily to you. It really went to the father of the bride. So I'm sorry to tell you that. And for some of you, the ship has sailed. You've been married for too long. You can't, it's not retroactive. I'm sorry to tell you that. It's not retroactive. You were, you were calculating how much, how much does he think I'm worth? Because we're about to enter some contract renegotiating. To gain the bride, a price had to be paid. In the Garden of Eden, after sin entered the world, the redemption process began and a price was set. Jesus, being our groom, paid the highest price for his bride, the church when he gave his own life to ransom her. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knew the price and he asked the Father if there was any other way to ransom the bride. In, G in essence, Jesus was saying, Father, this price is great. She's an expensive bride. This is asking a lot. But if there's no other way, I'll do it. I will do anything. I will pay any price for my bride. Third part of the ceremony was that the bride and groom are now legally betrothed to one another. The first level of betrothal is what we call what we call in our culture today a couple's engagement. It legally in the Jewish culture engagement or this first level of betrothal legally bound the groom and the bride to one another. 
though they did not physically live together. This is why during this engagement, um, if you decided to separate from your fiancé, you had to get a divorce. So if you read in the Gospels, when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant and he knew he wasn't the father, he sought to put her away privately. He sought to divorce her quietly. He didn't want to shame her because adultery was guilty, was a, the punishment for adultery was being stoned, and he loved Mary. And so he didn't want to shame her. He didn't want to subject her to public uh, execution. So he sought to divorce her quietly. They weren't married. They were betrothed. And in this culture, you had to get a divorce to break the betrothal. Thankfully, they didn't divorce. Um, so historically, God betrothed himself to Israel at Mount Sinai when he entered a personal covenant relationship with God's people there. The fourth part is that a written document is then uh, drawn up, which is the marriage contract. That is called a ketubah. And this document states the price of the bride. It states the promises of a groom and the rights of the bride. And the ketubah was the unalienable right of the bride, and it had to be agreed upon before the wedding ceremony. This book is our ketubah. It is our wedding contract. It specifies the price that will be paid, God's promises to us, and our rights and authorities as the bride of Jesus Christ. Number five, the bride must give her consent. A bride could never be forced into the betrothal. She has the final say-so. She has the right of refusal to the contract. Now, Paul told us in Romans 10, he says, that if you believe that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you are saved. Essentially, if you give your consent to being part of the bride of Christ by accepting Jesus as the groom, you're welcomed to be part of his bride. But no one is automatically in. No one is automatically part of the bride because of any other factor. You must give your consent. You must agree to the terms to live for God because he died for you. The sixth part of the Jewish wedding ceremony was that gifts were given to the bride much like your wedding ring is given to you, and a cup called the cup of the covenant was shared between the bride and the groom at this engagement ceremony. After this cup is shared, the Jewish man would tell his fiancée, as Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 26, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine until that day we are together. Basically, Jesus was saying, as every groom told his bride, I'm not leaving you to go party. I'm going to work. And I will come back as quickly as I can. And so when the, when the groom places the ring on the bride's finger, this rite of betrothal, the first part of it, is complete. This part is called the Kiddushin. I know I'm giving you a lot of Hebrew words, but it's called the Kiddushin or the Sanctification. It is the setting apart for one another. This is when you have a fiancé and you give your, your fiancé, your future bride, you give them a ring to be a warning sign to all other males. I am set apart. I'm off limits. 
keep walking. And so this is uh, a gift given to the bride by the groom as being willing to partake in this ceremony, that she has consented to be the bride. God gave us the greatest gift he could possibly give, salvation from our sins. He's also given us spiritual giftings. And Jesus spoke. Remember, when they share, when they seal this part of the ceremony, they drink a cup of wine together. And Jesus spoke when he held the cup at the Last Supper. He said, this cup is not just a cup of covenant. It's the cup of the new covenant that will be established in my blood. The seventh part of it is that once the bride accepted the proposal of marriage, she had a mikvah, which is called a, it's a water immersion. It's ritual cleansing. If you read the Old Testament and they talk about how if you're going to go to the temple, if you're going to celebrate this festival, you're going to do this or that, you have to be ceremonially clean and you have to immerse yourself in water. They did this all the time. If they touched a dead body, touched a dead animal, they could not approach the holiness of God with the uncleanness of whatever they had done that made them unclean. So they had to put on new clothes and had to immerse themselves in water. They had to have a mikvah. And so this is a ceremonial act of purification by immersion in water. It indicated a separation from a former way of living to a new way of living. And in the case of marriage, when the bride would have a mikvah, this indicated she was leaving her old life of singleness and coming into a new life of marriage with her spouse. Well, when God's people accept, well, when people accept God's proposal today, and accept his salvation, his gifts that he has given to us, we encourage them to have a mikvah to publicly proclaim their new way of life. We call that water baptism. But the water baptism is not a New Testament concept. It's a very Old Testament concept called a mikvah. Number eight, the groom departed. He went back to his father's house and he began to build a bridal chamber. Sometimes he would buy a piece of property on his father's land and begin to build their own home. And it was the man's duty to go away and be with his father, build a house, and prepare for the eventual wedding. But before the groom would leave, he would promise the bride with these words, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will return unto you again. That's exactly what Jesus said to his disciples in John 14. The groom would buy a piece of property from his father. He began building a house for him and his bride. And isn't it an interesting fact that while Jesus was on the earth, he was a carpenter. If anybody can build a big, beautiful mansion for the people of God, it is the master carpenter himself. The ninth part of this Jewish wedding ceremony is this. The bride was consecrated and she was set apart for a time while the groom was away building the house. So before the groom could go get his bride, the groom's father had to be satisfied that every preparation had been made by the son. Only then would the father 
give the son permission to go get his bride. The groom did not know when the father would declare the bridal chamber finished and ready. The groom did not know, the son did not know when the father would give permission for him to go get his bride. Jesus said this in Mark 13, 32-37, when he said, No one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. In the mind of the bride, the groom could come back at any point, even in the middle of the night. Therefore, she had to be ready at all times. When the time was perfect, the father would say to his son, Son, go get your bride. The tenth part of it is this. The bridegroom would return with a shout. Behold, the bridegroom comes. And the shofar, which is a ram's horn or a trumpet, is how it's some, uh, translated. A shofar would be blown to alert everyone, to wake everybody up. The groom is coming for his bride. Paul told us it will be the exact same thing when the Messiah comes for the people of God at the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the shofar of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord for in the air, and so we shall be with the Lord forever. <clears throat> Amen. Number 11. This only goes to 12. I know you're thinking, wait a minute. He didn't tell us how many points. It's 11 out of 12. So the groom would take his bride. The wedding ceremony would be completed and the marriage would be consummated. The bride and groom would stay in the wedding chamber for seven days. They would be totally separated from the outside community. Some of y'all are doing the math and like, I got shafted on that honeymoon. Seven days, seven day vacation. They will be totally separated from their outside community. And at the end of the seven days, they would return from the chamber together. This is a picture of the great tribulation that we read about in the book of Revelation. The tri- while the tribulation will occur here on earth for seven years, the groom, Christ, and the bride, the church, will be in heaven, totally separated from the outside community. But at the end of the seven years, the groom and the bride will come back together at the second coming of the Lord. Finally, number 12, if you are writing these down. There will be a marriage supper for all of the guests invited by the father of the bride. This is the wedding reception that we have in our modern weddings today. Um, but the Bible has a specific name for it. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 19, John wrote this. He said, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Hallelujah. I'll ask our worship team to come up. Would you please stand with us this morning?
Revelation concludes with a powerful picture. Revelation 22, 17, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Verse 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 20. And John wrote, He who testifies to these things, which is Jesus, says, Yes, I'm coming quickly. Yes, I'm coming quickly. The desire of the groom is to be reunited with the bride. But until the preparations are complete, until the bride has finished preparing herself and the groom has finished preparing the, the mansions in glory, the Father has yet to give the command. It's the desire of Jesus to get his bride. Peter wrote in one of his letters, he said that we can hasten the day of Christ's return. We can speed up the return of Christ. How? By doing what Jesus commanded us to do. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations. But the opposite of that statement is also true. We can slow down the return of the groom by not doing what Christ has commanded us to do. And we can look at this and we can have just as many questions and objections to the gospel and to living this Christ life as the disciples did. But in these fearful days, in these troubled times that we're living in, we can have peace. Our peace is firmly rooted in the promise that Jesus Christ is the Messiah the King of kings and the Lord of all lords. And he will return for his bride. Because all of the prophecies, all of the prophecies around his first coming were fulfilled. We have great assurance that all of the prophecies about his second coming will be fulfilled as well. And knowing that, there is no reason to fear when we are in the presence of so great a savior there is no reason to be afraid though the earth be shaken though mountains be removed though there be unrest in every area every aspect of our culture and our community though the threat of civil war exists though the threat of of sectarian violence and racial violence and all of this stuff exists we can have no fear because we are in the presence of such a great savior this world is condemned. This world has fallen. It is wicked. It is unrighteous. It is filled with hatred. The ruler of this world is the prince of the power of the air. This is what the Bible tells us. The ruler of this world is not Christ. It's Satan. We are, we are foreigners. We are aliens living in a wicked society. Our job is to take as many people with us as we can to keep preaching the gospel. Because one day soon, the Father will say to the Son, Son, go get your bride. And we want to be ready for that day. If we're going to be ready, Jesus Christ has to be first in our lives. He will not take second place to anyone or anything. He must be first place. I've said it several times, so I'll say it again. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. 
He must increase and we must decrease. That's the only way this works, that we must be wholly surrendered to Him and willing to do what He says when He says to do it. This morning, our worship team is going to lead us in a final song, and I just encourage you today, look inward, look inwardly today. Look at the condition of your own heart. Are you wholly surrendered to Him? Or are you still trying to follow Jesus and do your own thing? Let this song be a reminder of your position, of, uh, the, of the position of Christ in your lives. And then at the end, I'll come back up and we'll close in prayer this morning.